Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. In-depth, personal conversations with the most legendary figures in the history of contemporary music. Come with us as we explore the stories behind the albums and songs that have become the soundtrack of our lives. Here's your host, Pete Ganbark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Rock and Roll High School. This week, I'm super excited to sit down with musical legends Gamble and Huff. As the creators of The Sound of Philadelphia, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff have written and produced over 175 gold and platinum records, including all-time classics by the OJs, Billy Paul, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, The Three Degrees, Lou Rawls, Teddy Pendergrass, and the Jacksons. They are inductees of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Dance Music Hall of Fame, and in 2009 were named BMI Icons after collecting an astounding 86 BMI Pop and R&B Awards. In 2010, Kenny and Leon were each awarded honorary doctorates from Berklee College of Music. They're also former co-chairmen of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. This interview was recorded live in front of an audience at Atlantic Records in 2018. The girls got plenty good loving. Ask me how I know, and I'll tell you so. Ladies and gentlemen, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. I have to start by saying it is an absolute honor and privilege to be hosting both of you tonight. So thank you so much for coming. Yes, thank you. So the first question that I have, both of you are so synonymous with Philly, Philly soul, the sound of Philadelphia. Is Philly still your home? Yes, I still live in Philly. I live in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> so the secret, I guess, is that you're not actually from Philadelphia, Leon, right? No, I grew up in Camden, New Jersey, like right across the bridge. And... Uh, like 20 minutes away. And did you start going to Philly to work on music, or did yes. the city pull you in for other reasons? Well, I, I started playing piano when I was like about five, six years old, and my mother played piano. So I picked it up, sort of got good at it, you know. Like, uh, right by 10 years old, I was rocking pretty good. <laughs> you know? Piano was my passion. I was a studio musician before I was a songwriter, really. But uh, Meet and Gamble was like, uh, by the time I was 17, 18, I was ready to join a band. And Gamble had a band. I just had to get in. So is it true that you guys met on an elevator? Yeah. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Met on an elevator. Yeah, it was great. Well, by the way, with Camden, I call Camden East Philly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you got a North Philly, a South Philly, and a West Philly. But there's no East Philly. But uh, No, Gamble. But it, so what was, what was that first meeting like? You're in an elevator? Well, I was on the elevator first. <laughs> right. 
Right? He was on, yeah, I was coming in. Yeah. So the Schubert Building is called the Schubert Building. And that's in New York? No, that's no. in Philly. Oh, in Philly. Okay. Yeah, Gamble's been coming out of that building before me. Oh, though. yeah. But yeah. just this day, I happened to be on the elevator first because I, I had gotten a writing, a writing job with this publishing company called Majota Music, and it was on the second floor. So that's where I was headed. So the elevator guy said, hold on, somebody's coming. So, <laughs> so it's Gamble, right? So I'm on the elevator. Just me and Schubert Building Schubert Willie, Willie the yeah. elevator guy. <laughs> Schubert Building Willie? Schubert yeah. Building Willie, yeah, that was his name. Yeah. So here come Gamble. He's a good he's, dude. He's got a, a guitar in his hand. So I don't, I, don't, I don't really speak out, you know, how you doing, you know. I've well, seen him with that guitar, so I said, he's holding that guitar like he know how to play it. You know? <laughs> so I didn't know him. I said, he must be a songwriter or something. So I don't know how the, the conversation started, but we introduced each other, and uh, found out that Gamma was a writer, too, up on the sixth floor. So, and I was on the second floor. Right. And is this, is this around the same time that the Romeos were a group, or was this before? Uh, this was before the Romeos. Well, around the same time. You know, I get dizzy sometimes when I start talking about <laughs> these dates. But, you know, the thing of it was, is that when I saw Huff on that elevator, I knew it was unusual because there wasn't that many African Americans in that building. So my first thing was, what you doing in there? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing in there? So, uh, so me and him started talking about writing songs and, and uh, you know, want to be a producer. I said, man, I want to do the same thing. You know what I mean? So, um, How long after that did you guys have your first session to write Maybe about like, like a week or so. A week or so, I went over his house in, in, uh, in Jersey. And, man, we must have wrote together maybe about five, six songs. In, in the first know, session? First session. It was unbelievable and much easier, you know, because I was playing the guitar and trying to write the lyrics. Now I ain't got to play no Huff as a master keyboard player. So uh, basically my, my contribution was lyrics. That's what I do is the lyrics. And, um, and so it was so easy. Yeah. It was so easy and so much fun. Me and him be falling out, you know, yeah. just laughing because, I mean, it's like a miracle happened for you. <laughs> You know, so the instrumental melodies were coming from the piano? Well, I basically I, I anything come to my head, really, you know, just melodies. But just like Gamma said, it became easy because I used to have to think about lyrics, too, you know. Uh, I wrote a song called Mixed Up, Shook Up Girl that inspired me to keep writing because like a top ten record. You know, my first hit record was like when I was in like... Pre-Gamble. 20, yeah. And, Who was uh, the artist? Patty and the Emblems. And uh, I didn't have to think about words no more when I met Gamble. I just <laughs> concentrate solely on orchestration. So it was meant to be. You yeah. didn't have to worry about yeah. playing piano. You didn't have to worry about that. But what I did was I rigged the piano. See, that plays an important part, I think. The more I think about it, uh, it was an upright. That's what I uh, learned how to play at, at my house in Camden. But we had an upright piano in Gamble's office. But what I did was... I took, off, I took off the top of the piano and I went to the drugstore and I put thumbtacks behind each hand. And that made a whole different sound. Made it brighter. Made the piano brighter. It was a yeah. piano, but yeah. it didn't sound like a piano. It sounded like a whole bunch of other instruments. See, Huff and I, when we were writing, it was like a show. You know, it's like we was on stage, you know? And, and what we would do is, um, it was spontaneous. 
everything was basically spontaneous. And I think the um, our pre-writing was basically our conversations with one another. We talk about the world. Like if we're going to write a message song or something like that, we talk about how crazy the world was and why people can't love one another and why people can't get along. We're all humans. And then we'll come up with a song like Love Train. And it's come out out of nowhere, mm-hmm. you know? And then we fall out on the floor and say, where in the world did that song come from? So the concepts like that coming from one of you more than the other, or could it be either one coming up? Love be either, either one. Either one. Just out of conversation. Yeah, just out of conversation. We talk about everything. Relationships, yeah. current events, everything. We talk about everything. Now, before you started writing together, mm-hmm. you were a session piano player. Yeah, I used to come up here to New York. And uh, and you played on some really famous records. Yeah, I, I met uh, through Johnny Madeira and Dave White, I met uh, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, the late great Ellie Greenwich. And uh, they invited me to come to the Brill Building. And they, I remember they called me and uh, I didn't know, first time I went to the Brill Building, first time I ever heard of it. How old were you? Oh, 22, 23. But I went to the office of Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, and uh, that was a thrill for me to play on one of their sessions. And uh, it was The Boy from New York City by the Ad Libs. And did you play on At the Hop? No. Danny and the Juniors? I worked for the guy who was part of that production company, Dave White, who was a member of Danny. What about Phil Spector? Yeah, that was another thrill for me. Jeff called me again. Jeff Barry said, man, can you come up? I said, yeah, I'll come up again. So this time I went to uh, Mirror Sound, and I, I, I didn't really know who the, who the producer was until I started hearing the musician talk about, he's here, he's here, he's here. So I, I went out in the lobby to see who was coming, and it was this little guy, you know, had this tall girl with a little dog, long leash, his dog sunglasses even, even back on. then? I said, who's that? That's Phil Spector. I said, I said oh, wow. I said, so I happened to play on the Ronettes Christmas album, and I played on uh, follow-up to Baby, I Love You. The follow-up to Be My Baby, right. Baby, I Love You. So, But that was a thrill for me as a musician. So as a musician, see, my mother used to buy albums, and I used to see on the back of the albums, they had pictures. So as a kid, I used to look at the pictures and see the, all the studio, uh, musicians in the studios, and I used to dream about playing in the studio, and, and, uh, and it happened. You know, I ended up playing on a lot of sessions. I played on Quincy Jones' session when I was like 23, 24. So I did a lot of session work, too, and, and uh, after that dried up, then I went to Philly, started hanging out in Philly, then uh, that's when uh, I started, you know, meeting Gamble, right. going to Philly. And, and Kenny, you were, were you bringing coffee to WDAS? Oh, yeah. <laughs> DAS, yeah. legendary um, Philadelphia radio station. Radio station, yeah. Well, um, I think that uh, WDAS and radio at that particular time was very, it was essential to breaking records. And you had... Uh, personalities on radio that were overwhelming in the community. Like Georgie Woods was over, he was famous. He was more famous than the mayor of Philadelphia. I mean, than all the artists that we were playing. And uh, and so 
how I made it to um, WDAS was uh, a friend of mine's name was Pat Gordon. God bless him, he's not here anymore. But we had a we had a group called the Ordells, and so we uh, in Philadelphia they used to have a penny arcade where you could go and make a record, a little record. And so we made a record. So we said we got to take this to Georgie Woods so he could play our record. So we walked all the way to WDAS from South Philly. That's where we were from. We walked all the way to WDAS, which was in Valmont Park. And once we got there, they wouldn't let us in. <laughs> and uh, I told the guy, I said, look, I said, we got a record, and we need Georgie Woods to play it for us. Finally, Georgie Woods did come out. He came out to talk to us. When he saw the record, he said, I can't play that record. He said, that's not a real record. You know what I mean? He said, that's made out of plastic or something or whatever. But the beautiful thing that happened was I knew where that radio station was. And so it was about four or five of us at that time. So I used to go back. I used to walk back out there and I, I would go out there and I would shine people's shoes and, and run errands for them and whatever. One day I was, I was out there and uh, the guy who was at the door, he told me, he said, Kenny, everybody's been looking for you. I said, I'm in. I'm in. Once they start looking for you, because they need somebody to go to the store, you need somebody to, you know, shine their shoes or whatever. And so, you know, I became a, a fixture at the radio stations. That continued even through Huff and, and my writing, because without the radio station, it wouldn't have been no gambling Huff, you know, with Butterball. And I mean, that that's a whole nother world altogether, disc jockeys. And we were talking before, it's kind of an End of an era with with End of an those era. guys not yeah, really. It really anymore. is. Well, personality radio is is not like it used to be. You know, especially rhythm and blues. Rhythm and blues is uh, I don't know. They're playing a lot of old music, which Huff and I we get the benefit of because they play a lot of uh, what do they call it? Uh, well, they play our music anyway, and we're part of a format. What was the first hit song that you guys had to go? Expressway to your heart was it something? Well, yeah, that? well, yeah. Expressway to your heart and um, Cowboys to Girls. All that stuff was right around the same time, you know, which was great. And so, Soul Survivors and the Intruders were those two artists. So, were those artists who were hanging around Philly, and you said, "Hey, guys, we have a song. Come sing it." Or was it different than that? No. Well, Jerry Blavitt. Who was a big another radio legend? Yeah, yeah legend. And uh, the Geeter with the heater. We were real good friends with him, and um, still are. He had the Soul Survivors, and uh, he managed them. Him mm -hmm. and his his partner Nat Sigel. So that's Blavitt, one way to get airplay, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> Blavitt asked. He asked us. He said, "You know, you want to do a song with them, you know?" And so we said, "Sure." And Huff and I, we um, we messed around with that song. That idea for that song came, I was trying to go over to my one of my girlfriend's house, right, on the expressway, which was new in Philly, by the way, the expressway. And it was so jammed up. I was singing, trying to get to you for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I got with Huff, Huff put that bass line in there. Dun, and, and, dun, dun, oh, dun, yeah, dun. listen, it was great. Oh, 
But you know, you writing songs to me is is a uh, it's a gift. That's just how we treated it. It was a gift, and we still do. And let me and Mrs. Jones, we saw that play out. We just didn't really sit like down. A real life story. Oh yeah, yeah. like like a mm-hmm. director see a movie scene. We saw that. <laughs> well, well, with that intro, you got to tell us the story. <laughs> Go ahead, though. No. <laughs> And they had this restaurant called Boots. Boots. Boots is bar. Right below the building where we had our offices, the Schubert building. So me and Gamma used to see this couple come every day, sit at the same table, you know, and um, she go to the jukebox, she played the same song. And when they leave, you know, he go his way and she yeah, he'll walk her to him. So I says, Gamble. I said, I know that guy. I know I know I know him. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's not his wife. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, young girl, too. Yeah. <laughs> but that's true. So we went upstairs and we wrote a song about it. <laughs> he never came looking for royalties, did he? No, <laughs> no, no, but uh, we created him. Yeah, we created that old scene because it could have been his daughter, it could have been his niece. You know what I mean? But you know, it's the way Gamma wrote the, wrote the story. You yeah, know? and um, and where does an artist like Billy Paul come from? So you have the song, oh, boy. It's Billy Paul, I've been knowing him for so long. Uh, Billy Paul, he had a, a shop on South Street where he sold a lot of African and Indian garments and whatever and I used to have a record shop on Broad and South Street so I used to see him every day you know what I mean we used to talk and whatever and then he used to perform at a place called the Sahara which was like a club I used to go there in South Philly I'd go by there and see him I said boy this guy is unique he was really unique and um, he had an album uh, that he had produced himself this is when we had uh, Gamble Records and this was um before we had Philly International and all that, that album was called Billy Paul Live at the Cadillac Club. And so in addition to that, we we recorded a few songs with it, and we packaged it and we put it out. We put it out on Gamble Records. Then when we came to CBS, we bought the OJs, we bought Billy Paul, we bought Al Melvin and the Bulldogs. These are all groups and, and artists that were neighborhood hanging around Philly for right. years. You know what I mean? And like the Blue Notes, Hal Melvin and the Blue Notes, boy, I mean, they were they were excellent performers. You know, so that's that's the biggest part uh, that I think uh, helped propel us was is that the artists. Well, not only had great records and great songs, you know, thank God, but what happened was is that these guys, you put them on the, on the, on the stage. Great performers. They turned the joint out. Right. Like the OJs. The OJs is nothing to play with. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Eddie LeVert, my God. <laughs> you know. Did any of these artists have aspirations to write their own material ever? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Are you kidding? Yeah. Well, a lot of times that's what happens, you know, to these relationships is that 
They not only want to sing the records, they want to write the records, do everything. I said, well, damn, is, is nobody going to get no money out of this or what? <laughs> they want to take all the money, some of the artists, you know. And so I would think that, um, I don't know, I guess, I guess, I guess that's nature, though, because a lot of the artists are like that. You know, they think that it's all them. Well, you have to have an ego to put yourself out on stage as a performer, right? Yeah, but you know, you gotta you gotta respect each other. Like even in a band, when you have a band, everybody's teamwork is what we were really all about. Is that everybody has their part to play? And um, did any of the artists ever have writing talent? And you said we'll collaborate together. Mm, I, don't, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't remember nothing like that. Because, <laughs> but let me tell you why I think that I say that is because the songwriting staff that we had with McFadden and Whitehead, who are, were excellent, and with Tom Gambling Bell, Hub, right? Tom Bell, Linda Creed, Sherman Marshall, who wrote songs like Then Came You and whatever. Man, this this was like a... I like the name of this uh, this thing that you're doing here called uh, Rock and Roll School. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. It's very clever. Yeah. And that's what our building was, 309. It was like a school where guys like me and Huff who couldn't make it before, couldn't even get into the business, couldn't even find out the details of the industry, were able to come up to uh, 309 South Bourne, Philly International, and we could share with each other how you can make a living, mm -hmm. number one with your music, because that's the real breakthrough, is that I used to pray every day. I said, Lord, if I could just do nothing but write songs, I said, I'd be happy. You know, and that happened, you know, where that's all I could do every day was write songs. So, Did you guys look out west to what was happening in Detroit with Motown and say, hey, if, if they can do it, we can do it? Go ahead. Not really. Well, we went out there. <laughs> We did go to Motown. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was amazing. You visited? See. Sure we did. And it they was tried a, to sign us. Right. It was amazing what they, they were tried able to, to do. They tried to sign you as writers. Right, yeah. And no interest. Well, we did that. <laughs> we went out there, you know. And um, But my thought was after we had gone out there and saw Holland Doge and Holland, who were excellent writers, and um, Hank Crosby, and I mean, it, it's that was the dream because just what you said, we, we said in Philly, if they can do it, we can do it, you know. And uh, I think it has to do with um, excellence. If your product is great, it'll break down all walls that's holding you back, you know. So we didn't get a chance to see Barry Gordy, who I wanted to meet when we were out there. And, so uh, I, I I read that the first time that you heard this the Supremes and the Temptations, <laughs> I'm gonna make you love me. Your yeah. song, yeah. You were driving in a car and you almost drove off the road. Yeah, that's that's exactly I'm true. <laughs> so that's Motown but, then covering one of your songs, right? Uh, a bar song. Me yeah. and Huff wrote that song, and uh, and Jerry Ross, who was a uh, was a partner to that too, but. Man, listen, Temptations was my favorite group, number one. And I don't know anybody who didn't love the Supremes. Supremes were, they were Supreme, you know. And uh, Two biggest groups 
ever yeah. singing your song. So yeah. when the disc jockey said, we got a new one tonight, The Temptations <laughs> and The Supreme singing, I'm going to make you love me. I said, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> <laughs> I pulled over. I'm telling you, because I said this is this is too. And no, no one ever gave you a heads up that, hey, son. No, nobody told us that they was going to do it or whatever. You know, we because you guys had cut it on Dee Warwick, right? We cut it on Dee Dee Warwick, Dion Warwick's sister. Yeah, she did. She did a decent job, though. Yeah, she did. She did. But you know, again, we didn't emulate Motown. We didn't. No, we just the structure. You know, with the writers. But we didn't try to get their sound, you know. No, like we had our own sound. Like everybody else was trying to do right. You know, yeah, drum sound. We didn't. We didn't do none of which that. Which is why. Which is why you were successful because you did you. Right. Yeah. Well, Barry Gordy would tell you himself. He said, "Look, we kept our eye out on Billy <laughs> International, you know, because uh, yeah. it was inspired, friendly, friendly maybe, competition, right? You know? Smokey Robinson inspired yeah. me. I mean, he's amazing one of my music, favorite amazing writer. Songs. I yeah. love Motown." Because they really were an example of, musicians, uh, yeah. of how to get it done. Because African Americans in the uh, in the industry, I mean, do it yourself, right? Because it was hard to get in. Ain't nobody gonna let you in. Right. You gotta you gotta bust right. that door down, and you gotta break it down with talent, right? You know. So that's exactly what we tried to do, and it really happened. So I'd be remiss since we're sitting uh, in the home of Atlantic Records. Tell us mm. about. Your history with Atlantic, pre-Philly International, with um, with Aretha, with Wilson Pickett, with Wex, with with Ahmet. Boy. Well, I'll say this, then Huff can say what he, what he want to say. I was an artist on Atlantic. First of all, we had a group called the Romeos, and we had a Leon, song. Leon, you were in the group as well, right? Yeah, he was in there. Yeah. Was That's in the there. band I had to get in. Yeah. It was great. And Tom Bell was in that group, too. Yeah, at first, yeah, I took his place, Tommy's yeah. place. Yeah, that was a great thing, though, and and we got a chance to work together with a band, mm-hmm. which eventually became MFSB. They became the studio band, so so it was all everything was connected. Like, you know. Gamma had a, a great band. You know, I, yeah. I I was working at the hospital then. Let me tell the story, Gamma. You Go know ahead. what? I kept hearing about this band. You know, you know, hospitals. We work every day, so I was working in the what kitchen. What were you doing in the hospital? Working in the kitchen, washing dishes. That's what I did, you know. So I got off on the weekend. I kept hearing about this band, Kenny Gamble and the Romeos. I said, boy, everybody was going to this club in Longside. It's packed. So this particular weekend I got off. So I said, I'm going to see this band. So my boy picked me up. We went down to the club. We couldn't even get in. And these guys didn't even have a record out, but they were great performers. And Gamble was the lead singer. Tommy Bell was the keyboard player. We had Roland Chambers on guitar, his brother on drums, and Winnie Wilford on bass, and they was rocking the place. I mean, the place was packed. There's line. They didn't even have a record out. These guys, so when I finally got in, 
Camel was shocked. Now you had the shark skin suits on and the girls. Camel had the girls. The girls loved that's right. that. Tell man. them about it. Huh? Tell them. About it. Yeah. <laughs> Tell them you know, that's why they called it Kenny Gamble and the Romeos. Camel had the girls. I mean, it was packed, you know. So that was the kind of band that I was ready to get into. So I, I waited to, I don't know, the opportunity. I said, Gamble, man, I got to get in your band, man. I can get in your band. I can play. Come on. So I, Fate is something, so Tommy changed careers. Yeah. And uh and I stepped right in Good timing. as the keyboard player for Kenny Gamble and the Romeos. It was some of the highlights of my career because uh we toured all over and Gamble, I mean, everywhere we went, we just packed the place. Yeah. Kenny Gamble and the Romeos is in town, places loaded. The whole weekend. Okay. Yeah, it was good. Hey, that band it escalated when Huff got in there because uh it gave me and him a, an opportunity to to be together and write together. And and the key to our, our band was this. We used to rearrange songs. We used to do all the big hits. One in particular that we did was Moon River. We had an arrangement of Moon River. No matter where we were, we'd get standing ovations and people would say, do it again, do it again. Yeah, it was great. It was great. But, we toured with Chubby Checker and... Uh, Lou Anthony and Imperials. It was a great time. And uh, it was was great, you know. And uh, how long that last, Gamble? Oh, years. Yeah. When, was, when, when did the Romeos get signed to Atlantic? I'm bad with dates, but we did, we, did, um, we did a couple records with Atlantic as a group because the same thing, the, circ, the cycle, the disc jockey, Jimmy Bishop, who was a real good friend of uh, Jerry Wexler, he got them to sign us. Bishop, and it was great. You know, I mean, Bishop was uh, see the disc jockey was king. That's 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 the whole thing. And uh, we had we had good relationships with disc jockeys. Oh, unfortunately, to me, I always looked at it that I really wasn't no singer. You know what I mean? I used to hate to get out there. <laughs> you know, especially if it wasn't but a little. It's like I would come and there was only a few people out there. I would say, well, look, I'll be back when the place is back. <laughs> You know, I, that's what I would do because it, it would be too much. You know what I mean? I mean, that band and 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 our show. In fact, Huff used to sing too. Huff used to play the drums. See, we used to sing like the um, take six of modern day take with that real modern harmony and everything. You know, it was great. So, the formation of Philly International mm-hmm. was that something that. There's a story that CBS commissioned a study on how to succeed in R&B music. And they realized that there was a need out there that they were not able to accommodate. So they reached out to you to help um, to partner with you on Philly International. Well, our timing was good because we were in the right place at the right time. That Harvard report, I think you can get it on the Internet something like that showed how the rhythm and blues music was was um, for the future and that it had not been exploited, exploited uh, correctly. And uh, Clive Davis, uh, I, I was signed to Columbia Records too as an artist. You know, Clive Davis was the lawyer who did it, so I knew him. And uh, so I called him up and... Um, and I, you know, we, we had a little background because we, we were recording 
and as independent producers. And so Clive uh, Davis brought us up to CBS, gave us this little crazy deal, you know. <laughs> I mean, we said we got we got we got to hit these jokers, man, because um, they really didn't give us much money to work with. But what came out of that was Backstabbers, when will I see you again? Backstabbers wasn't written about the deal that you were given by CBS, no. was it? Well, it could have been now, <laughs> now that you see that. Backstabbers, if you don't know me by now, when will I see you again? And me and Mrs. Jones. Not bad. Well, that was, that was, <laughs> it was unbelievable, you know. And so Clive said, well, he gave us a better deal after that, you know. And, and it really was a good thing. You have to work for it. Is that about the same time that you guys formed Mighty Three, or was that later? Or Mighty earlier? Three was was about a year or two later, because Tommy was still independent, Tom Bell, and um, he worked with the Stylistics, and uh, he worked with Johnny Mathis. He worked with all of these great artists and and some and the Spinners, who were with Atlantic at that particular time. So we were able to really um, cover the marketplace with with a lot of different companies, a lot of different energy, and basically we became a publisher. And um, we had so many young writers that worked with us, and they were great writers, too. So It was interesting watching the video earlier mm -hmm. before we started, and you just hear the first few seconds of Rubber Band Man. Right. And it's as current as watching the Avengers movie. That's true. It's crazy, the, the lifetime mm -hmm. of these copyrights. Yeah, the songs are, are as a matter of fact, um, the slogan for Mighty Three Music was, uh, Tommy Bell said, we had, need a slogan, and the slogan is, you'll never forget our songs. You know, And it's true, because uh, the songs that we, we've uh, been able to write are songs that people know from from beginning to end. You go to a concert, for an example, and the singer don't even really have to sing the song because the whole audience is singing the songs, you know what I mean? And uh, and it's really, really, um, really good to see people enjoy that music after 50-something years, you know? I think I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the other stories behind the songs. So we talked about me and Mrs. Jones. Right. I'll throw out some titles. Anyone that you feel like you want to jump in on, you know, I don't want to force anything. Love Train, Backstabbers, If You Don't Know Me By Now, You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine. Wow, that's a good one. <laughs> you'll, never, you'll never find another love like mine. Is that true that you wrote that specifically for Lou Rawls' voice? Yeah. Well, I would tell you, Lou Rawls was a challenge for us. Because he was a guy who had a tremendous career, number one. Sam Cooke. Yeah. Yeah, and, right. 
Well, go ahead. Tell them. Well, we saw we first. Well, Jimmy Bishop. Jimmy Bishop again. On the course, jockey. He's the Rawls. one that got Luke Rawls for us. You know, so, was working with us. Yeah. Matter of fact, Jimmy Bishop had come to work for us at the company, mm-hmm. and um, he went out and he said, "I'm gonna go get Lou Rawls." He said, "Cause you guys could do a good job with him." And he got him. Well, I said gamble too. You know, I said, "Well, we we got to step our game up for Lou Rawls." You know, cause oh yeah, he wasn't like. Uh, uh, other male uh, solo artists, Lou Rawls was a different. He was seasoned, you know. He I was said, like uh, a black uh, Frank Sinatra. I said, okay, yeah, well, really? now we're going to stop. Look, did he? Yeah, you so know. now we got to. But that that voice is so distinct and unique. There's only one Lou Rawls. Yeah. Right. Huff and I used to sit down and and say, well, what what makes Lou Rawls really sell? It's that deep baritone voice, you know, and then he can. He can rap too. He was, he was a rapper. In fact, he was one of the first rappers, you know. And uh, is that his voice in the beginning of "Clean Up the Ghetto"? That's Lou Rawls. Yeah, one. yeah. "Clean Up the Ghetto." Mm-hmm. See, you know, man, you that, that song right there. That's a good one. I want to talk about that in a minute. "Clean Up the Ghetto." But the um, do you have Avery? Do you have uh, "You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine" queued up? I just if you haven't heard Lou Rawls' voice, you have to hear this because. This is a song perfectly tailored to the artist's vocal. You'll never find As long as you live Someone who loves you Tender like I do You'll never find No matter where you search Amazing. Amazing. Right? That was a good one. And, mm-hmm. but, but you know what? When we were writing that, Gamma was sounding so good singing it, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's another uh, attribute about our, our writing is Gamble could sing and sound good. So if, you, if you're a writing team and, uh, and one of the partners was a singer, it makes the song that you're writing sound really great. I mean, Gamble was right. When we were, okay, take for instance, we were writing uh, For the Love of Money. This oh, is man. for that one. You know, so we in Gamble's office and, and we rocking For the Love of Money and Gamble, we got the tape recorder going and Gamble was killing it. You know what I mean? Gamble was singing it. So Gamble makes the song sound great. It sounds really so good. I said, Gamble, you should sing that yourself. You know what I mean? But we write it for somebody yeah. else, you know. But hey. Yeah, I'm gonna make the song sound really good, you know. Hey, Huff, what? Sometimes I say I should have grabbed one of them songs. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And if I, could... I if we would have, me and Huff would be in Vegas right now. <laughs> yeah, you know, Gam on Huff at the Apollo, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, one of them joints. That'd be... Great. I mean, we be sounding good in there, but every time me and Gam will sit down to write, the tape recorder is running the yeah, whole time. That's true. The whole time we together. But Lou Rawls' voice was so clear. And crisp, and uh, mm. and plus he was a great uh, entertainer too on stage. Oh, this guy was great, you know. And uh, I miss guys like him from working with him, you know. Well, I mean, talk about some of the other voices he guys worked with: Teddy Pendergrass, Man. unbelievable. What about Joe Simon? What about Joe Simon? Unbelievable. <laughs> Joe Simon. Now we're we're working with him, uh, drowning in the sea of love. He got a scarf all around his neck. He got his coat on. And, and playing the music, and he's ready to run out the door to catch a plane or something or whatever. All I do is walk around 
Tell you, man. When I when I hear a, a singer like him, and we work with uh, Wilson Pickett, Wilson Pickett was unbelievable. These these voices that we worked with, Patty Labelle, Patty Labelle, great voice, powerful, yeah, powerful. Mm-hmm. Jerry so, Butler. So, what happens when your voice sounds better than the singer who's singing your song? No, but see, I can't keep it up. <laughs> I can't keep it up. Man, I might be able to do it one time, you know what I mean? But I lose interest after that, you know. Yeah. While we're writing, it, it's uh, it's great, you know, mm-hmm. for me and her. So we're we're talking about the songs, but let's shift a little bit and talk about the music for a second. Mm-hmm. Musically, your sound that you created, the Philly International sound, was so unique. The strings, the horns... But there was always a groove to what you did, even on the ballads. Mm-hmm. You know, the, I, I would ask, you know, is that something that was intentional? But it wasn't. You just wrote what you felt, right? Yeah, basically, you know, we just wrote what we felt. Every time when I come over to the office, I go to Gamble's office, that's where the piano was. And uh, I just, just go sit down and start just playing anything, you know. Damn, uh, my mom, like, hey, what's that? That sounds nice, you know, or, or melody. or Songs to us just come any all different kinds of ways. You know, we used to have a writing session. I might bring in 20 titles. Gamma might have 20 titles. And, oh. and we'll just pick, uh, you know, oh, that sounds pretty good. So let's write about that. So we pick a title, you know, we'll, we'll pick... That's, you know, or spontaneous. Gamble had the chords to me and Mrs. Jones was showing me the chords, you know. It just come in so many different ways. The groove of the songs that you wrote, some would even credit you with defining a sound that eventually became disco. How, how do you feel about that? Obviously, Ain't No Stopping Us Now is one of the all-time great yeah. disco anthems. I think what disco did... Uh, when you talk about the sound of Philadelphia, was that sock symbol that we kind of perfected in our in our tracks? Because we used to have two drummers sometimes, because it was hard to play that sock symbol all the way through and keep the back beat and and the foot and everything. So um, I think that um, disco took that sock symbol. In fact, dance music. Period. And especially when they start using the machines and all that stuff, they they got there. Because Earl Young, who was the drummer, this guy was fantastic. He's unbelievable drummer. And he he was unusual to be able to play all that stuff. And that's why sometimes we used to bring in a an, another drummer to help him out. You know, Carl Chambers, by the way. And Carl used to play just the sock cymbal, mm-hmm. nothing else. Earl would play the bass drum and the snare and whatever. And that's unique. Clashes. That's unique. Yeah. Well, that's what that's what helped the sound. Mm-hmm. And then plus Huffle on the piano, you know, those grooves, I'm telling you, it was unbelievable. We, we used to write the songs with the grooves, mm-hmm. with the melodies, you know. And it was like, um, I, I always described it like uh, West Montgomery, 
<clears throat> with the octaves on the guitar, with and that was either be Roland Chambers or either Norman Harris, right? And then you would have Vince Montana, who was on the vibes. He would be mm-hmm. playing mm-hmm. with the guitars that those figures. Mm-hmm. Then you had Larry Washington, who was on the, on the kungas, all right? And Lenny Pakula played the organ. And this was our rhythm section. And it, it became almost like second nature, you know, because there's only so many chords in the world period, <laughs> you know, and then you have to be able to come up with melodies. Who wrote your string arrangements? Bobby Martin, Tom Bell, Norman Harris. In fact, we, we um, encouraged all the musicians to be arrangers, be producers. And that's what gave us the opportunity to have so much volume is that music because people say, well, damn, how did y'all do all of that music? Because it was a team doing the music. And they were competing with me and Huff, right. which was rough. Right. If you're gonna try to if you're gonna try to compete with me and Huff, <laughs> shoot, you better come with it. But th- that <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that was also similar to the success of Motown because Motown same thing. was competition between it was the writers. The same thing. Yeah, it could get well, pretty we, ruthless. Yeah. yeah, because Motown was the best. That was the best music. It was for that era. It was unbelievable what Motown did. So I love Motown. I love. In fact, when they used to come to Philly, I used to go get them chicken sandwiches and everything. <laughs> you know, when they come to the Uptown Theater. Right. Oh yeah. Tell when you when you picked up Smokey. Oh Smokey Robinson. Yeah, yeah, check this out. Um, <laughs> all right, so I'm at the Uptown, right? Because Georgia Woods, they give their rock and roll shows there. So George say, Hey, look, Smokey, Smokey Robinson is at the airport. Who can go pick him up? So he said, Kenny, can you go get him? I had just started driving. <laughs> yeah, I had just started driving. I wasn't driving that long. So I had a little car, I had a little um Station wagon, because we, we had our band, so I used to use it for that. I didn't even know where the airport was. So I get out to the airport, and I pick up Smokey. We're coming back, and Smokey Robinson scared to death. He said, man, he said, can you drive, man? I said, <laughs> I said look, I said, I'm trying my best. I'm trying, I'm trying to figure my way back into Philly, you know. But even today, when I see Smokey, he always reminds me. He said, I remember when you picked me up, and... Uh, you know, I was like a, like a guy who would be hanging around a little bit, like the, the Uptown Theater. I went from a guy that was hanging around the Uptown and working along with all the artists and Jimmy Bishop and Georgie Wood to the guy who was counting the money. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Is that unbelievable? Amazing. Right? So speaking of Motown, I read that by 1973, Philly International was the second largest African-American-owned music company in America behind only Motown. So my question to you, how surreal was that for you? Well, it was great, you know, but uh, I didn't let nothing like that phase me because Motown, you can never beat Motown. Motown had too big of a head start. They were the inspiration for the whole thing in the first place, you know, for what we were doing. But it was good. It was good to be number one or number two or whatever the case might be to all around the world. We go all over the world and, and people, they know our music, you know, and they give us awards and everything. So it's a great feeling to have been able to play that kind of role. 
you know. Yeah, I felt the vibe, Gamble, when um, I, I used to read the Billboard every week. I still do, although it's different now, but I used to read it. So I used to keep up with the charts, because I used to put the charts, we had a, a long hall, and I used to put the charts on the wall mm-hmm. so the writers can see you know, the progress of the music. So this particular week, I used to circle our songs on the top 100. So this time I circled 10 Gamble Hub songs in the top 20. I said, Gamble, something's happening, Gamble. <laughs> I said, 10, Gamble, you know? I said, man. So I knew then that we sort of had the pulse of the world, you know, then that that was something else then. I I also read that in 1974 alone, Mighty Three had 25 pop and R&B hits and was the best-selling publishing company of the year. We had all that on the wall, you know? Inspires the artist, you know? We also had a billboard, too, uh, like when the OJs was due to come in to be recorded, you know, the OJs is coming to town and the, all the writers have songs prepared and uh, used to do that. And uh, when the writers used to see who's coming to town, then that's when they became piranhas. I mean, yeah. you know, they went, had to get a song on the album. So that, that was great. Then, you know, we would have like meetings with all the writers and all of us and we'd sit down and say, okay, well, the format for our albums was, during those days you would have maybe 10 songs eight, ten songs on an album, because some of the songs were long, long versions. And we would say, okay, maybe out of those eight songs that's going to be on the album, we might cut 20, 25 songs to get eight good ones. So we always would have a lot of stuff. We still got a lot of stuff right now in the can that's never even been out that we didn't forgot all about. It was like three songs would have to be like social comments, talking about something in the streets and trying to uplift people. And then you'd have another three songs in the album that would be love songs. And then you'd have maybe two, possibly three, would be nothing but funky dance music. And that's how we looked at the albums, that the albums would be, you would be able to take that album home, put it on your thing and put the needle on it and listen to it all the way through because there'd be something on there for everybody. With the songs that were more socially conscious, like we talked a little bit earlier about Let's Clean Up the Ghetto, mm-hmm. the, the creative inspiration for songs that were more socially conscious, a song like Let's Clean Up the Ghetto actually led to real social change. When you're writing a song like that, do you almost will it to happen where you feel that I have something to say and I'm really going to put my all into this social commentary? And do you expect something to come out of that? Those were powerful, powerful moments, you know. And um, when you're writing a song like that, you know that you're not the only person that's thinking this. You're not the only one. He said, if I can connect with the people who are thinking the way that I'm thinking, then this will be a success. 
and you'd be able to get this message over, you know. And uh, the beautiful part, well, clean up together, we stick with that. We have citations from all over the world where people took that song, like in Amsterdam. I mean, it must have been number one in Amsterdam maybe three, four times. And what it did, it inspired people, inspired people to get up and go out and clean up their neighborhoods. We had put together um, a baseball team, Philadelphia International All-Stars. That's where that record is. We had Archie Bell on there. We had Dee Dee Sharp. We had Lou Rawls, OJs. Who else was on that joint? I can't even. Teddy Pendergrass, he was on there. So we had all of our artists on this uh, Philadelphia National Artist uh, All-Stars. I think that, that that was the beginning of sending them out to uh, New York. We, we played W-O-L. No, that was in Washington, W-O-L. W-W-R-L was here in New York. And so Frankie Crocker and all of them, they, we played baseball games and had communities come out and whatever. So we were very community conscious. And that didn't hurt none. That helped. That helped because it gave us inspiration to see us being able to help people be more conscious about themselves, more conscious about education, you know, and uh, you know, like a song like Give the People What They Want, the OJs. This is, this is a monster song. Donald Trump used it, and I mean, so used it in his campaign. He used For the Love of Money on The Apprentice. How many seasons was that? About 10 seasons he had that on there because it's a hell of a message. <laughs> And for the love of money. Everybody, I'm nothing wrong with money now. I like money, you know. But the thing of it is you don't let money fool you. You don't let it rule you. These are the lyrics that, that was in that song, you know. must have been an incredible feeling for you to give back to the community in Philly with oh, yeah. what you did, establishing programs in education and employment and affordable housing. That's the best part. Real change. That's what makes it really worthwhile. Hey, that's just all we used to talk about, you know. So you know, and I don't expect everybody to think like I think, you know what I mean, you know, do what I do, but I'm curious about life. I'm curious about why, why humans are on this planet. I mean, what are we doing here? I mean, you got so many things <laughs> on this planet, and they all pretty much have a job description. You know what I mean? So the humans have a job description, too. We mm-hmm. got, I got an assignment, you know. So unless somebody in here created themselves, you know. I didn't create myself, you know. And uh, I'm floating through this journey. So how do you feel? How do you guys feel about modern music? both artists who would cover or sample your songs, like we saw in the video, Kanye, Jay-Z, mm-hmm. 50 Cent, or artists covering your songs. How do, how do you feel about that? Like when you hear a sample of music you created used in a completely I new way. I love it. And anybody know Jay-Z and one of them? Tell them to get another one. John? <laughs> <laughs> I always say that every 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 time you know, do a uh, yeah. John, John's working on it. He yeah, I it. always say if there's any rappers out there, you know, <laughs> you know Kanye West. I, I had breakfast with him one morning. Yeah, he's really smart, you know, really smart. And then, um, and I thanked him for using all of our, our music and whatever. 
keeps us in the game too a little bit, you know. So yeah, I heard one other day, Gamble. Yeah, somebody sampled "Love TKO." Love TKO, great song, good one. Woof, that a great one. Yeah, great song. What you say about it? Looks like another love TKO. Another good writer that was with us, Cecil Womack. Mm -hmm. He's excellent. You know what I mean? He passed on too. God bless him. But um, that music is going to be here forever. Talk about a vocal performance on that record. Unbelievable. Teddy Teddy Pendergrass was. If any of you guys don't know these records, we sent out a link, a Spotify Mm -hmm. playlist earlier today, around 25, 30 of your copyrights. I would encourage everybody. To devour those and go find 150 more because they're mm-hmm. on Spotify. If you type in Gamble and Huff, find a ton of playlists. That's great. Any advice for young creators? I like the word, you gotta have the passion for music. You know, you really gotta have the feel for it. You really wanna, you know, create music. You gotta have, a, have the feel for it. You know, it's something, um, something that you just can't uh, teach somebody you know you gotta have the feel for it just like anything else to feel for it you know the passion to do it that's what that's what made us work so hard mm-hmm. all those brooding hours because we loved it you know but it was long gamma used to be in the studio all night mixing because gamma mm-hmm. did a lot of the mixing you know and uh just gotta have the passion you know a good work ethic make a statement you know so uh, just got the passion for it be yourself that's mm-hmm. all Go get it, mm-hmm. cause it's out there now. Ain't nobody gonna bring it to you. You gotta, you gotta make it happen. You know, me and Hoff, this wasn't no easy thing. It might look easy us sitting up here right now. Talking about, <laughs> you know, we did this, we did that, but no, no, this was, this was a rumble. Blood, sweat, and you tears, gamble. Yeah, this is not no joke. You know, mm-hmm. and you gotta be good. You gotta be good at what you do. You know, you gotta love it. And like I'm saying, just go after it. Because um, I remember people telling me, you know, hey, man, you ain't going to make it, man. Come on, man. You, you crazy, man. Right, yeah. song, man. You, you ain't no songwriter. You ain't no singer. <laughs> Come on. I used to look at him. I said, yeah. I said, okay. And then when the stuff broke loose, I said, yeah, okay. I'm, you see, because you can't let people. That turn your head around, you know. Make and weren't those the same people who would say, I always knew you were going to oh, do it. Oh, yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> Buy me a beer. Please. Give me a beer. <laughs> <laughs> so said, yeah. You have a favorite song that you've written? If you had to pick one. Well, every time they ask us, I always say a different one. I can't, I can't do that because I love a lot of them. You know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, I can't say that just one. What's what's one song that's special to you of the songs that you've written? It's kind of a same way of asking the same question. Same, yeah, I see, I see how you're doing. <laughs> but I will tell you this: is one of the songs that I love is uh, um, is Family Reunion with the OJ's. I like that one; it's a great song. But when people ask that question, me and I always come around to saying that. 
The favorite is Love Train. That one right there. Love Train? See that? Look how you did that. You just say the words and the music starts. Yeah, yeah. That was, you know, that was good. I knew that was it when we was writing it, guys. Oh, yeah, it was great. Because it was flowing so good, you know. Talk about a groove. Man. I mean, it's, it's rightful right now. It's, you know, I mean, this world is crazy. I mean, we, <laughs> it don't make sense. It don't make sense. I it's, mean, it's for you. It's a timeless message, unfortunately. Huh? It's a timeless message, unfortunately. That was another thing that we used to do. Our slogan was... Um, the message in the music. And then people used to say, well, what's the message? What's the message in the music? I said, love is the message. So all of these were songs that we did. Love is the message was MFSP. Mm -hmm. So the question becomes is that each person has to define what love is to them. Mm -hmm. And then you'd be able to float through this journey and, and make the best of it. Leon, same question. Pick a song special to you. When will I see you again? I mean, every time oh. I hear that song, was a great song. Uh, I would say me and Mrs. Jones, but that's a nasty song. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to go deep like that. <laughs> Keep it up on the show. Oh, it's hard. I, I love music. Oh, that's another good one. Yeah. You got a little I Love Music by the OJs over there? Right? Let me ask you something. Do you have a song over there uh, called 992 Arguments? Mm -hmm. You ever heard that? Of course. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a. Did you, hey, yeah. did you write that? Me and Huff. Oh, good. good. Yeah, All right, but, good. No, but listen, let me tell you how that happened. I'm over at his house and we write, right? So his wife was in the kitchen cooking a little something for us and everything. So me and Huff said, well, we're going over here to get a beer. You know what I mean? Go because it was a beer, it was a club right across the street. So we stayed over there. We might have stayed there a little kind of long, right? Huh? Yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> we came back. His wife said, Where y'all been at? You know what I mean? I'm gonna cook this food for you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, man, we went to the piano and we said 992 arguments, <laughs> you know, but it was beautiful. Another one called I Don't Love You Anymore, Teddy Pendergrass. Teddy Pendergrass. Right. We don't yeah. about everything. You know, we had a song called Let's Make a Baby by yeah. Billy Paul. I mean, we just wrote about everything. Everything. You know, uh, 
People say, I, I see them on the street, they say, yeah, that, let's make a baby. I made some babies. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. And Arthur Frostock did a great rendition of that. Of, um, of um, what song was that he did? Um, when Love Is New. When Love Is New. Great yeah. song. Here's another artist we don't really talk about, but it was a great experience for us, I think, when we worked with Nancy, Nancy Wilson. Nancy Wilson. Yeah, that was good. That was... Uh, Phyllis Hyman was, was unbelievable. Great artist. Yeah. Know? Very easy to work with. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Great voices. Yeah. And great performers. I mean, Phyllis was like... Uh, she was very statuesque, you know what I mean? she come on stage and she was... Um, boy, I'd say... Unbelievable. We'll have to do a part two. Part two. You come back anytime. Thank you guys so much. Leon Huff, Kenny Gamble, Gamble and Huff. Thanks a lot to Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff for joining us on the podcast this week. So many amazing stories about the unbelievable music that they helped create. If you want to learn more about Kenny and Leon's music and dive into a treasure trove of content, make sure to visit gamble-huffmusic.com. Thanks a lot for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another episode of Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School is a presentation of Pure Tone Music in association with Warner Music. Produced by Pete Ganbard, with assistance from Craig Rosen, Ron Robinson, Joe Pomerico, Kelly Sayer, Chris Costello, Avery Landau, and Rich Mahan. Please visit our website at rockschoolpodcast.com for more info on past and future shows. All rights reserved. Rock, 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 rock on high.